Hi everybody, it's John Lamoureux. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. My guest this week is Marge Raymond. Uh, If you listen to the introduction that I recorded for this podcast, you'd know that she was one of the main inspirations for me even starting this thing. Um, In the 70s, she sang backup for a number of big acts, uh, the biggest of which was probably ELO. She sings on a couple of hits that you've heard a million times and didn't even realize that it was her voice. In the mid-70s, she formed a band called Flame, and they put out a couple of albums on RCA that did pretty well. She was especially, they were especially kind of big in the Midwest. It eventually came to an end, and uh, she went on to attempt to form many other bands after this, and for whatever reason, most of them being out of her control, they never quite got off the ground. And it's a shame, because she has one of the most amazing, powerful voices you'll ever hear. And that, I think, and she recounts some of this as well, may have been part of the problem. At that time, the music industry had no idea what to do with a powerful, rocked female singer. Yeah, there had been Janis Joplin. She was dead by this point, and there just weren't that many out there like Marge. And unfortunately, it worked to her disadvantage. She's one of the most amazing singers I've ever heard, and wait till you hear some of the people she knows, has collaborated with, has hung out with, has been friends with. It's incredible stuff. She's an absolute survivor. She called me from her home in Brooklyn. Raymond, thank you for uh, being willing to be interviewed by me. I uh, have been had an interest in you for about seven or eight years now. When I first heard you singing with Flame in a local record store here in the Denver area, and I just had to know what the story behind this woman with this amazing voice, this broad, with a you know don't mess with me attitude, what her story was. And so, why don't we start from the beginning? Where did you you grew up in Brooklyn? How did you? Were you passionate about singing? Was that something you knew you always wanted to do? Yes. Um, I knew, well, according to my mother, I was born singing. And um, I think as soon as I could talk, my mother and father always had the radio on, so I would sing along. My mother said I would be sitting in my high chair and singing along with the radio. So I was gifted from a very young age. and. My parents saw this, and they bought me a little piano, a little child's piano. And I would start composing music at about the age of five, and my mother would say, what are you doing? I would be banging on this piano, but in my head, I was creating all this music. Like, you know, like when you hear about, like, Mozart as a child, and he would create music, and it was always in his head. Mm-hmm. That was me, except I didn't know how to translate it, you know, so it... Mm-hmm. um yeah, so I started very young. In school, I would, any opportunity I could get to get up and sing at assembly or anything like that, you know. I was mm-hmm. the first one there getting up and singing. And quite frankly, I thought that everyone could sing because it came so naturally to me. I just thought, you know, just like everybody can, you know, jump around and play and, and whatever. I just thought it was a part of of being a human being. So, and of course... Sure. Later on in life, I realized, wow, I have something that nobody else really has. So I'm curious, I've been you, doing it since I was very young. Did you um, did you recognize early on that you yourself had a very unique singing voice, or was that sort of manifested to you by the comments of others? You know, it, that's that's a hard question to answer because I would sing along to records. You know, my yeah. growing up was, you know, 
50s music, 60s music, and I would sing along with everything. Marty Pray And the answer you give May they still be the same For as long as we live My Prayer by the Platters, Tony Williams, he belts out that last note, at the end of my prayer. And as a kid, little kid, I would keep doing this until I could emulate him exactly with the sustain and the big belt. And so when I would have my friends over, I would say, come on, let's all sing along. And I realized like, nobody else could do this, but I could. So it was kind of like, that and my mother getting report cards stating that I was a gifted, you know, child mm -hmm. with a musical ability. Just like I said, I would get up and sing and entertain. Sure. I was just born this way. So, That's yeah, amazing. it kind of like came to me young that I did have something. But because of the era that I grew up in, women did not have this freedom that we have now. I grew up in the era of you you grew up and you got married and you had children. You didn't you didn't even nobody asked me if I wanted to go to college. Nobody sure. it was just a given that I would, you know, by eighteen I would be engaged and by twenty one I was married and having babies. That yeah. was like in the late fifties, early sixties. But for me, I, w I had a lucky break, you know. That's amazing. So you start singing doo wop. And eventually you are um, discovered. How did you get discovered? So in the 60s, doo-wop was a very big thing. Group, You found group all around New York City. You would hear guys singing on street corners or down in the subway because of the echo. Mm -hmm. I used to hear this one group sing on my street corner. I was too young to go out at night, but I would listen to them. And I, I was able to memorize everything that they would sing. And then when I was old enough, probably at about the age of like 13 or something like that, I would go out and say, you know, I, I know every song you guys can sing. And they looked at me like, who's this kid? You know, right. you know and they, they said, yeah, let's hear you, you know, as if I would make a fool of myself. And I would sing all what's called the top notes, the first tenor notes. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, my God, listen to this kid sing. And so wow. I became a part of the local doo-wop singing groups that would sing on street corners, sing in, the, sing in the subway, sing in the park. And one day we're singing on a street corner, and this man is driving by. He stops. He comes over to us, and he says, you guys are phenomenal. He says, I want to take you up to the Brill Building. He was a, little did we know he was a manager of groups. Right. And he brings us up to the Brill, the famous Brill Building on Broadway, where uh -huh. 
all the great hits were written, you know, and... Did so, you know what the Brill Building was when he made you this offer? Oh, yeah. Everybody knew okay. the Brill Building. Okay. You know, sure. that's where all the hits emanated from. The sure. greatest writers were there. This is in the days of, you know, all the great... Carol King and... Oh, Jerry my Hoffman. God, Carol. Yeah. Ellie Greenwich, who I got... Yeah. Became a very close friend. You know, she wrote... Be My Baby, To Do Run Run, Going to the Chapel, Chapel of Love, I mean, River Deep, Mountain High, yep. Neil Sedaka, all of those great, um, you know, songwriters. Um, Stoller and, and oh, oh, my God. On and on and on. So we go yeah. up to Libra Stoller. So we go up there and we're presented to Co-Ed Records, the president of Co-Ed Records. And we're singing, and I'm singing the background vocal. And all of a sudden, the president goes, stop, we want to hear the girl. <laughs> and, they, and and the guys look at me, and they go, oh, my God. Once they hear her, forget about it. It was like, so can you sing like the Supremes, they asked me. I said, yeah. Because at the time, Baby Love was the big hit record by the Supremes. Sure. So they wanted me to, like, emulate the Supremes. So I just, you know, sang the first couple, baby love, my baby love, like that. And they go, all right, she's the lead singer. <laughs> and the guys, they looked at me like, they, oh, my God, they're making, so it became Margie and the Formations. That's amazing. And you know, those of us like that. That's and we incredible. Recorded and said, those of us that grow up in the West, I mean, we don't, we, you, talk, you listen to people like Daryl Hall, and they started the same way, singing on street, doo-wop on street corners with their friends. We we have this romanticized version of that because we've seen it in movies. But right. I don't know that any of us really think that that's real, you know. It or maybe real. it's just this kind of scenery that they throw into mo- period movies of the time. But that actually happened to you. You and some guys singing doo-wop on the street corner, and the next minute you're in the Brill Building, and the next minute... You're the you're a singer. We're making me the lead singer. Well, back then it was girl groups. You see, it was Supremes. Yeah. It was it was the Ronettes. It was all those great girl groups. So um, I just you know, and you cut singles back then. So right. I cut a single, and it was like it's almost like a double sided hit, Sad Illusion. And you better get what goes for you. Of course, you can hear it. It's always it's on YouTube now. And right. um, I made this single. But at the same Did you, time... And someone wrote it for you, and you went oh, and Oh, yes, the great, right. um, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, oh, my God, there was Billy Dawn, Billy Dawn, I can't remember okay. now, but Billy Dawn Smith, and these great arrangers, Burke Chicoto, as, as the four seasons are walking out, I'm walking in the same recording studio, yeah. I mean, we all, it was just one of those kind of great experiences. When they recorded back then, everybody recorded at the same time, unlike they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the background vocalists, if you if you listen to that Margie and the Formations, you will literally hear a female voice in the background. That's Cindy Bird's song who eventually went to join the, um, the Supremes. So she was a session singer. Wow. I became a session singer. I became a session singer at the Brill Building. So here I am in high school, and I would have to get notes from my parents to, to leave school early to go to, to the Brill Building and record. So yeah. um, they, the writers, unbeknownst to me, and I didn't realize it, I had such a good musical memory. They would play me a song, 
I'd memorize it, and I could record it. And to this day, this is like one of my fortes. I'm very, very fast in the recording studio, and time is money in the recording studio. So sure. here I am, a kid at like 14, 15 years old, and I'm recording all these demos, these amazing demos that um, then went on to Dusty Springfield and, and wow. uh, you know, so many people. I recorded um, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, Angel in the Morning, and I yeah. demoed all those first. So it's like yeah. that's my voice they heard first. And, and this is your job, right? So, I mean, well, I you're, was going you're to being school. paid for this. <laughs> but you're being yeah. paid for it too, correct? Oh, I was making more money than my father at the time. I could imagine. Pay me in nineteen, maybe nineteen sixty-five, thirty-five dollars per song, and I wow. knock out two songs easy. Now back then, this is before everything inflated. You know, our currency inflated. Mm-hmm. You were ma- if you made a hundred dollars a week, that was a lot of money. Sure. I mean, I remember yeah. our rent only being $48 a month. It was great. Oh, my God. You went on the subway for 15 cents. I mean, it was it was before everything inflated in the in the latter part of the 60s. Sure. So, you know, milk was like 10 cents. You know, it was all that crazy yeah. that you yeah. heard. So that, I was making $35 a song. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah, yeah. And you're singing so, demos. And yeah. it's then... Is it then that Jimmy Iodine hears you and says nope. we got to build a? Oh no no no! Oh okay, let me let, oh, let me build up to that. So here okay. I am. Go ahead. I'm, I'm in the era, like I said, of women really not having careers. Sure. So I had a boyfriend, and I became engaged, and I gave up my music career. Now, I was asked to be the lead singer of the Shangri Las. And by Shadow Morton, and I refused because one of his stipulations was, you cannot have a boyfriend. And I had already, you know, I was in love, I was going to be engaged, and to me it was more important to, to, you know, be married, because that was the society and the culture at the time. That's the influence. I... I said no. My manager fainted <laughs> because uh-huh. he knew that it, they, they they were gonna, you know he knew that that was going to be an absolute huge group. And I can remember um, my manager calling up my parents, and I'm crying, saying, "No, I don't want to be in that group because I can't have my boyfriend." And uh-huh. and my father saying to to my manager, "She's in the corner crying over there. I can't make her do something she doesn't want to do." Right. So I give up my career. I become engaged, I get married, and then a couple years down the line, now we're talking, I got married in 1970, and I did all this recording like in 1964-65, graduated high school in 1966, married by 1970. By 1973... I bump into my friend Susan Collins that used to go to school with me, and we used to sing. Uh-huh. She is a songwriter. She's a heavy-duty session singer. And so she sees me. And she goes, Marge, i got work. She says, come in. I'll, got, put you on, I'll put you on a session. And I went, oh, my God, I'll do it. Now I'm dying to sing again. 
Right. Me on a recording session with her, and that was it. Once I started singing again, and I was always singing at back. friends' weddings. That was it. Sure. There was no turning back. And that was when, oh my God, we became Susan Collins and Nancy O'Neill and myself. We became a trio called Sue Magna, right. and we had an incredible tight harmony. And then we were asked by the new writers of the Purple Sage to go on tour with them as their background vocalists. And lots That's of bands amazing. were using us. Then came... Were you primarily backup singers? Do you mind me um, asking? Yes, yeah, Sue were Magna. Were you putting out no, your no, own no. albums or songs or anything? Sue Magna. Susan Collins is a very, very prolific songwriter. She, she and I and Susan, I mean, and Nancy O'Neill was signed then to Don Kirshner. Remember Don Kirshner? Yes, yes, Rock yes. Concert. We yes. were signed to him, and we were recording Susan's songs. What happened was we also got the phone call to be on the Electric Light Orchestra album. Mm. Jeff Lynn came to New York to, he wanted to use Record Plant, which is where John Lennon was recording. And he mm-hmm. wanted to use the engineers that John Lennon used. And he wanted a girl group sound. So Sue Magna had this great harmony sound. Jimmy Iovine was an engineer at the record plant. He also was good friends with Ellie Greenwich. We were all great friends with Ellie Greenwich. Susan had a really close relationship with Ellie. And from that, I got to know Ellie very well. So when the call came in from Jeff Lynne to Jimmy Iovine, Jimmy Iovine goes, well, I know Ellie Greenwich. She's the queen of pop. And Ellie turned around and says, well, I've got the perfect group, Sue Magna, to join me on this recording. So we went into Record Plant, and we're all on the Face the Music album. We're on a big hits, Evil Woman, Strange Magic. Night Rider, One Summer Dream, and even Jefferson gave me a solo on Down Home Town. listen to that album today by the way just to because okay. I hadn't heard it in a while and I want to make sure I picked out all your parts no you can't uh, my voice I mean, where's day yep yep especially on down hometown you know I just came up with that part in the control room and Jeff Lynn says oh just go out there and record it That's <laughs> you know it was like we were yeah. creating on the spot so I Maybe. shared a cab Jimmy Iveen lived in Brooklyn and we shared a cab home and he goes to me, wow, he says, you've got a very, very special talent and a very special voice. 
He says, you need to have your own band. And I looked at him. I said, yeah, just like that. I can, mm-hmm. you know, how am I going to create a band? You know, I'm like this young girl, you know, still married and sure. still doing, you know, uh, singing and going on tour with Sue Magnin, whatever. And I said, I can, how am I going to form a band? He says, I'm going to form a band for you. He said, you're so good. I'm going to form a band around you. Wow. And while I was working in a bank, and okay. <laughs> I would go to work, and then from yeah. work I'd go straight to SIR, which is a big rehearsal hall and uh, studio instrument rentals. They also rented out instruments. Uh-huh. And we, I would come in, and Jimmy was now auditioning drummers, bass players, guitarists, and that's how we got Jimmy Crespo. First we got the guitarist from the band Illusion, which we, which was a local, really hot, hot band okay. in the 60s and early 70s, Illusion. And we had a couple of their band members come in, but it didn't quite work out. And somehow the word got out. Jimmy came in, Jimmy Crespo, and he auditioned, and needless to say, he he's a sensational sure. and talented guitarist. He immediately was, uh, you know, joined the band. And so right. I would come from work, the band would rehearse, and I would just walk in, and they were writing material, and then we got a record deal. Jimmy Iron was able to shop us to the major labels. Did Jimmy Iovine already know all the musicians that would become Flame and sort of put you guys together? Was there sort of a, a chemistry test at first to see how it would work? Or what was the, you know, what was the process like of getting the right pieces in place to make sure this band was going to be strong enough? Yeah, well, you know, it was. It was a, there were a few people that came in and out. Um, it was a chemistry thing. Okay. And it, it was like, it was almost word of mouth. In, in the music business, everything is word of mouth and, sure. and, and, and networking. So it's, um, it's the famous not what you know, who you know. So if sure. you're at the right place at the right time, and, well, we're looking for a drummer. Oh, my God, well, I know my friend around the corner, you know, he drums. So you'll get, the, you'll get a, a break like that to come in and, and audition. So they, Jimmy was auditioning my band members. Mm-hmm. I, I, here I am working a day job, right? and he's forming the band. And then once we got signed to RCA and we were able to get money, that's when I quit my job. You quit, quit your job. job? Do you remind, do you mind me asking, do you remember what your cash advance, your advance on the album was or your signing bonus or anything like that? Do you remember you know what, what that was? I really don't know. We were all paid a very small salary. Okay. We were all on a stipend, so we were paid a salary. And at the time, it was it was ridiculous. It was like maybe a hundred dollars a week. It was nothing. And, it, but and it was that's how nineteen seventy six. Sure. So. Um, and that's how these most, things work. And this is this is something I want to kind of uh, look at a little bit. So when you sign a record deal, you become a salaried employee, and then you mm-hmm. get paid what every two weeks. Is or is that how it works? Or no. No. You get a okay. lump sum. This is how it works. Okay, you get I'm, a lump I'm going to sum. give you a hypothetical number because I really don't know. Let's just right, that's sign. Fine. You sign with a record label. They will give you a cash advance 
and you have to spread that money out. You have to pay the recording studio. Mm-hmm. You have to um, pay the musicians. You have to pay for a crew. And so let's just say they give you a million-dollar uh, recording deal. Right. They have to recoup that money first yeah. with before you really make any money. So that's why you get small salaries. Yeah. And it takes a lot of money to, to record. I mean... I bet. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to record an album. Sure. And so you have to pay the engineers. You have to pay the people that master the record. There's just so much. And the producer, the producer, he gets a big cut, you know. He gets points mm-hmm. on the album plus a big cash advance, you know. They're Especially the when you guys are starting money. out because you are you have no track record. You're, Nothing. You're taking so this you, gamble on you, right? That's right. So... so. It's all recuperable money. So unless we get huge hits, and you, usually back then, bands didn't make money up until maybe the third album. Yeah. Because they were so busy paying back the record label that advanced the money to them first. So you, that's why a lot of bands, they live out on the road because they, they just have to, they have to work and work and work until yeah. they start, you know, getting in the black because they're in right. the red so, you know, so deep. And- and while this is going, so you've already sung backup for ELO and Evil Woman and Strange Magic become these huge hits. Right. You, were you paid, again, kind of a, a lump sum, like, thanks for coming in and singing, here's a check for the one day of work? Is that how that works? Yeah, I was a union. Okay. A union singer. So okay. just like everybody else who's who's a, you know, professional musician, you belong to the union. You belong to the American Federation of Musicians or Screen Actors Guild. Right. AFTRA, SAG-AFTRA now, they've merged. Yep. So back then it was AFFM, American Federation of Musicians, and, and AFTRA. So you get paid scale, whatever the right. musicians got paid scale at the time. Okay. And it was, it's pretty good money. I mean, and, and you sure. can dub, overdub your voice. You know, you get paid, and then for doing so many different little things in the studio, you get paid extra. We were very lucky because with with Electric Light Orchestra, they get actually put our names on the album. So oh, that huge. legacy okay. right there, my name is on that album. Yep. They and are you going back to the bank and to your friends, your coworkers at the bank, and Evil Woman is a huge hit? You're like, that's me? Can, I know, that's, that's me singing... Crazy. Right there. I mean, that must be that must be life changing, right? Like even now, I'm I'm walking through the, the supermarket and I hear that here it being piped over the even sure. right today. I'm I'm standing there, you know, looking at chop meat saying, my voice coming out over the. It's like surreal. It's yeah. I, I have no way to explain it. It's just it's really surreal to hear okay. my own self. You know, uh, coming yeah. over the radio. I mean, 35, 40 years later now, it's still being played. Sure. It's like, oh my God. Like, it's still amazing. Did. Everyone knows it. Yeah. Okay, so Flame is put together, and um, at this point, have you quit the bank? Yes. I you quit the bank, and you're devoted first full time to Flame and making Flame happen, right? <laughs> and, the ba- and the bank was priming me. In management training program, I mean, they oh, were investing boy. in me. They were sending me to school. 
they would, you know, data processing was just starting in 1976, yeah. computers, uh, you know, yeah. so. Isn't it amazing and, how our lives could go totally different ways depending on. I could have been a senior vice president in, in the banking yeah. world today yeah. because they were yeah. priming me big time to be a, um, you know, a big executive. And yeah. I said goodbye and yeah. went to my $100 a week and, but you know what? In retrospect, looking back, I would have done it again. Because sure. today I would have been very well off. There's no doubt about it, you know, financially. In music, you make money in spurts unless you're like the Rolling Stones or, or something. Right. You know, there's very few bands that really make money in, in longevity. You make right. it in little spurts. So when you look at your your life in the big picture, so in 1970-something, you made X amount of dollars. Then in 1985, you're back to making nothing again. So right, right. Get it, you get it, it comes and it goes, or you do little gigs, and you make a few bucks here and a few bucks yeah. there. So it's like, it's not really about, a musicians, it's not always about the money, it's about sure. playing and singing, and it's just about doing your profession. yeah. I feel like you've got a, it's a calling, especially with a voice like yours, my gosh. It's well, a calling, you. you've got to follow that, right? It is a calling. I can't live without singing, so I don't care yeah. where I sing as long as I sing. Right. So, Queen of the Neighborhood, Flame's first album, uh, comes out in what, 75, 76? 77. Oh, 77, okay. And Fight Orchestra was 75. That's right, that's right. ELO, 75, Queen of the Neighborhood, 77. And um, what kind of, what happens? Well, I'm like the first, <laughs> they haven't seen anything like it in the music industry. Sure. I mean, prior to me, there was Janis Joplin, but she's in a league of her own and, and doing yeah. whatever she did. But she already now is gone. She passed away. Yeah. And and really, there's, there's really nobody. I mean, Jefferson Airplane, maybe. Right. And, um, but that's a whole different conglomeration it of is. music. So, me coming out fronting a, a classic hard rock band was they didn't know how to market me. There was no marketing. There was nobody before me. So, there's right. no marketing. They were at a total loss. What do we do? How do we market this woman? I mean, yeah. they didn't know how to tr make me dress. I had this enormous voice that fit the big rock band that I was in. Yeah. It just didn't, if they were smart. Now, you see, looking at today, and you look at people like Beyonce and Pink and, and, and all of the, all of the great female vocalists, you know, they have, they, they look phenomenal because they sure. dress. Look at Lady Gaga and these phenomenal bodies. I was a black belt in karate back then. I was an athlete. So, you know, right. it's like, I had a phenomenal body too, except they put me in jeans and a t-shirt right. and, and, uh, and sneakers and, sure. and, you know, they didn't think of marketing me like, um, right. wow, she's a great female singer. Let's, you right. know, and, and with this athletic, great athletic body. Right. Didn't know what to do. So were there singles like, off that album? I, I know I have that album. Beg I, me.
Beg Me was the single that came off yeah. that. Did it get regional airplay, national airplay? What was kind of the it got national. Reception? It, it okay. went national, but it really sold in the Midwest. In the oh, Midwest, really? that's where they ensconced us on the road. So we, we you know, where radio back then, you had music directors for your local radio stations. So mm-hmm. you, we, the, the field offices of, let's say, RCA, it, their job was to go to these record, I mean, to these radio stations and give the promos, uh, singles, to get airplay. Now, airplay then gets your record sold. And then we sure. were coming into town. We were on tour with Foreigner at the time. Foreigner. Oh, wow. Breaking yeah. large. So we were on tour with Foreigner and... They had, and it feels like the first time, which was an absolutely mm-hmm. huge hit. And here we are breaking with Beg Me out in the Midwest. So we were in Ohio a lot. Right. And then we were in, in Illinois and in, in Kansas and, oh, my wow. God, Nebraska. We were uh, in the middle of tornado season. So it was like um, <laughs> twisted time. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Sure. Twisted all around us. And so we wow. also toured with Bachman Turner Overdrive. I mean, we were, we were on tour with a lot of big bands. And then we, um, you know, headlined in Ohio, in Cleveland, because really? our record sold big in Cleveland. Yeah. That's great. Do you know now how many units overall Queen of the Neighborhood sold? You want to know something? Now, in today's market, we would be like platinum. Yeah. You're selling, you know, you're lucky you're selling even, a, you know, 100,000 yeah. units and, and you're, you know, it's huge. I don't yeah. really remember, but it wasn't, it wasn't the uh, six-digit category. I mean, we did um, sell in the hundred of thousands. Wow. But, but back then. Yeah, higher expectations. You're talking about Pink day. Floyd being on the chart yeah. for 10 years, you know, selling millions and millions of units. Yeah. So we charted, but we charted high, meaning, you know, like in the top, we were in the top 100, but never made it like into the top 30 or top 40. Right. Regionally, like in like certain parts of Cleveland and and all in the Midwest, yeah, we were, we, we, we charted big there. That's great. But nationally on like the billboard charts like that, Uh we were in the top 100. Okay. And were you, I'm guessing this is the first time you and your band have been anywhere west of probably New York, let alone like the Mississippi River, right? Well, not me, because I had already toured with the Riders of the Purple State. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. And I was on, on tour with Electric Light Orchestra, so yeah, the new Riders, forget it. They were, all, they, yeah. they were absolutely huge. I did yeah. big, huge festivals with them. I mean, you know, I was... Brought in by yeah. helicopter, it was like, you know, it was, things That's were amazing. so big. So I was used to being out on the road and being all over the United States. Yeah. So, okay, so then um, then Flame self-titled album comes out a year later, right? And I read, or I saw, I heard an anecdote that, was it Bruce Springsteen was one of the first people to hear the completed second Flame album? No, he heard the first one. Oh, the first Very one. instrumental okay. in the first, because Steve Van Zandt 
is the arranger of my horn section. We use mm-hmm. the Miami horns, which was Bruce's horns. And Clarence Clemens plays on my album, on All My Love to You. Frankie Miller, great. Frankie Miller, one of the greatest soul singers. Um, you know, Blue Eyed Soul from England. Yeah. I covered one of his songs and had Clarence Clemens play the um, sax solo on it. very instrumental in the first album. In fact, okay. he was the first person to hear the mix, the, the final mix, and after it got pressed, because Jimmy Iovine was the engineer for the Born to Run album, which right, right. absolutely broke Bruce Springsteen huge. So yeah. we were all friends. I mean, it, it's a small business, and you all get to know each other. So I went to Bruce Springsteen's house, and he heard, he heard the, the record, and he yeah. pointers. I mean, he said, Marge, you're going to be the only woman I ever know that's going to go out there. He says, and don't let them see you sweat. I'm little that's amazing. I said, me sweat? Are you kidding? <laughs> so he, knew, he knew exactly. I was, I was like, I was an animal on stage. Right, right. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, everyone in the world knows Bruce Springsteen now. And here's Mark Raymond, who in today's world walks the streets of Brooklyn and the people who passed by you on the street would have no idea that this woman at one time was good friends with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know. That's fascinating to me. You know what I mean? But he's just an average guy. I mean, it's sure. so, to you, then he a lot was. of people, um, they kind of like romanticize, you know, rock stars or whatever. Uh-huh. But they're all down to earth. Everybody I've ever okay. met. Yeah. And even now, they're all just like you and me talking right now. They just all down to earth, and it's a job. This is what we do. This is what yeah. we love to do, and, and it's our calling, and some of us make it really big and become household names, and some of us don't, but we yeah. still all know each other, and I have tremendous respect as musicians, you know, for each other. You know, That's whether crazy. you're huge like Bruce Springsteen yeah. and whomever, or you're somebody like myself who, I go, you know, I'm going to be writing this book. It's called The... Uh, most famous unknown rock star. Yeah. Uh-huh. Me. So it's yeah. like, you know, a, a lot of people know me, but they don't know me. Right. They know, right. They know of me, but they don't know me. I mean, sure. you've heard me. They know of me. If you Google me, you'll see me on a million different projects I've been on. Yeah. So it's, it's but I'm not a household name. Yeah. Somewhat Crazy. here and there, but um, sure. household names, Rolling Stones, The Beatles, you know. Right, right. And then... People come and go in this business. Yeah. But they don't really go. They just fall out of the household name category. They're That's still playing locally. It. Yeah. They just find new they ways to stop. keep going on, right? To keep hustling. Well, you don't stop. If you love what yeah. you do, you, you find a stop. way to do it. Like myself, yeah. I've never stopped. 
Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, still, I'm still, you can find me every weekend singing somewhere in the New York City area. I sing in a cover band now. So I, I, I sing in a group and I sing all, there is a huge draw for music recorded in the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And even now, we like I'll, I'll do Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. I mean, it's, yeah. they, people want to hear the old music. I believe Don't, it. We have a big, the group I'm in, Generation Gap, we have a big uh, following. People want to come and hear us all the time. Yeah. I'm always working. That's amazing. So the second Flame album comes out, and is it still kind of the same thing? Sells about the same as the first? Big in the Midwest? You're still hitting Ohio a lot? Or does, does something change in the, during yeah. the second album? It changes. Oh. Well, I, there was a big political, hmm, it's kind of like there was, you know, I really can't talk about it because it's sure. like, it's, eh. well, let's put it like this. There was a, um, God, I don't even know how to say it, but that would, I don't want to get in trouble. Right. Let's just say that it didn't work out. The management didn't work out. Jimmy Iovine had to drop out. He went on to do Patti Smith and, and, mm. and other things. But he kind of like shied away from the band because there was a, uh, something happened. Okay. Among okay. him and somebody else. So yep. no, okay. nothing against me and nothing against the band, but there was a political thing that went down. Sure. Yep. So. These things happen, right? It happens. And this is what happens with a lot of bands. Right. So out of their control, somebody, someone somewhere well, loses a job, or there's a lot more than I really can't talk about it. Okay. But okay. um, it, it, and so the band wound up basically finishing the album ourselves, producing it, and then Jimmy Crespo and I disbanded Flame. Okay. Because we didn't like the new management, we were sold. We were sold into a different management company, and. We no longer had Jimmy, and so Jimmy Crespo and I just said, "That's it. We're going. That's it. The end of yeah. playing." One, yep. and we we already started the third album, so I still have the oh, songs really? to the third album that we were starting, and and that's when we stopped. Okay. And so, Do you still are you still in possession of that music? Oh, absolutely. You have the whatever they are, the demos or the. The initial oh, yeah. recordings for that third Flame album. Okay. I find yep. that interesting that that music I is still out there in the world. I probably will release one of them on okay. uh, a podcast. Um, oh, that's nice. what I've been doing lately is releasing stuff yeah. that I have so that people can hear. It was never formally released, a lot of stuff, so I have it in my possession. That's amazing. The thing is transferring it from cassettes to CDs. You have to find the right... Yeah. I, I thank God I know some people that help me out with that. But I, I have know. so much yeah. that needs to get off it. the tapes. And well, and speaking of which, die. yeah, I mean, speaking of which, so you go from flame to kicks, right? Yes. Now, here's what happened. So okay. Crespo and I said, all right, we're going to shop ourselves. We created a demo, one of the greatest demos, him and I, to this day, we even say it's the best recording session we ever had in our life. 
we you know, we did a lot of work at the record plant, and so one of the engineers there on spec in the middle of the night. We were so well rehearsed, Jimmy and I, with the material. We went in and we knocked off, I think, about eight songs all in one night. Wow. And we had a keyboard player, so it was it was a an acoustic demo, okay. piano, acoustic guitar, and my vocal. Jimmy Crespo was a very prolific songwriter. He was an excellent songwriter, just a, a stellar musician. Mm-hmm. And so the material was very strong. We shopped ourselves with this demo. We went to the Lieber Krebs organization. Now, Lieber Krebs had in their stable Aerosmith, ACDC, Ted Nugent, um, oh, right, right. Michael yeah. Bolton. Lieber Krebs was the management you wanted to be with. So, David Krebs, Jimmy Crespo, and I go there and we do a live audition. And he loved us. He heard the, he heard our demo. And so, He's figuring, once again, here I here I am, the female. What do I do with this female? What do I do with a girl? I mean, she's yeah. great, and, and he didn't know how to market me. Still, there's nobody before me. Right. Maybe Park now just came out, but that's two females. And, yep. and you know, Ann and Nancy Wilson, so they, they still right. didn't know what to do. So, all of a sudden, Aerosmith is having trouble, and... Joe Perry drops out. And so Derry Krebs goes to Jimmy, you know, they're auditioning guitarists. Why don't you just go down and audition? And I say to myself, no! As soon as I knew that, I, as soon as I, I knew as soon as I heard Jimmy, they would take him. Yeah. He's, he's incredible guitarist. And sure enough, he gets, he gets the gig with Aerosmith. So now I'm left without my partner to work with. Sure. And David says to me, well, I'll tell you what, Marge, go get a band, find a band, and I'll put you out on the road with Aerosmith. So, here I am looking for a band, and I don't know how it happened. You know, it's just, it's like in the cards, I guess. Somebody just says to me, oh, my friend, his uh, his brother is the drummer of this band, and they, they, have, they don't have a lead singer. So I go and I wow. listen to this band, there's this great guy, a power trio. They were phenomenal. They were young guys. I mean, I'm in my 20s, but they were like teenagers. Oh, wow. They were 20 years old, but they were phenomenal. And I these guys are just local it. musicians. They're playing yes. kind of locally they were, wherever they can do it. Yes, they, they were, but they were. Tommy DeRossi was this great guitarist, great songwriter. P.J. Mamola, great drummer, and Jimmy Iommi. The rhythm section, the best, best rhythm section I ever heard in my life. And, and Wow. And Tommy Gerasi, prolific songwriter, great guitarist, had all this great material, and they were tight. So I had yeah. a walk-in situation, which every lead singer, that's what they want. Is a, sure. A, let's call it a walk-in situation where the band is already, they already have their stuff together. So I find this band. We call ourselves Kicks. David comes to hear us, and he says, oh, my God, you guys are phenomenal. He says, you'll be the opening act for Aerosmith. So... That's how I became the opening act for Aerosmith. Running my wheels to forget to you.
see so much. Please, DJ said, Marge, listen, do me a favor. Send a few background vocals for me. Um, you know, after I opened the show, I would then right. back out on stage with him and sing, you know, a few of his songs. Sure. So, was so you're on tour opening for Aerosmith, but you do you have a record deal? You don't have a record out, mm-hmm. though, right? No, well, here's what we got. Felix Papillardi, who used yeah. to be with the band Mountain, mm-hmm. and he also produced Eric Clapton. He now is producing us in the studio. Kix is recording an album, and a phenomenal album at that. Right. And I've heard what you put on YouTube. It's amazing. Amazing. That's only one out of like about six or seven songs. Killer. What happens is then the management turns around and says, well, you know, maybe we'll just sign you and not the band. And I said, ah, how can that happen? I mean, yes, but this is crazy. This is how the music industry goes. So then Felix was shot by his wife. He oh, died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Terrible tragedy. So Kix, then that all ended. And how, how did that feel? I mean, do you at this point, are you feeling like you've gotten two big breaks that, were on the cusp of kind of breaking, but bad luck brought them down. Not something you did, but bad, just general bad luck. How, was that just heartbreaking to you, or did you not really think about it that way? You just kind no. of it off. You know, it, it just was like you just roll with the punch. I mean, you just, it's like, oh, uh, here we go again. We've got to regroup. You know, it's like circle, yeah. circle the wagons and, and off with forward hole. And it's like yeah. what did occur was, Steven Tyler now is having a lot of inter- a lot of internal problems in Aerosmith at the time. Sure. Now we're looking at about 1980-81. The band is falling apart, Aerosmith. Yep. Joe Perry leaves the band and Jimmy's in it. Now Brad leaves the band. Steven now goes up to Sunapee, New Hampshire. He's hanging out, doing his thing. Joey Kramer's getting really antsy. He wants to perform. He wants to play. He says, Marge, let's put together a band. He put, because he knows what I can do. I was sure. opening act. He says, me, meaning himself, Joey Kramer, I'll get mm-hmm. Tom Hamilton, the bass player from the yep. outfit, Jimmy Crespo. We pull in Bob Mayo, who we worked with Peter Frampton, and we created a band called Renegade. Yeah. And we went in the studio and recorded an album and it was phenomenal. We were yeah. using this huge sound stage to rehearse and people would come to hear us. Now, we were re- getting ready to be signed to CBS before it turned into Sony. Stephen hears that his band is now mm-hmm. being lost to me. Right. He comes out of the woodwork and he goes, Marge, no offense, but, you know, I love you, but I owe CBS two more albums. got to take <laughs> my band back. Right. And there goes Renegade. Goodbye. Uh, but so here I have the tapes, the Renegade tapes. Now, the Aerosmith fans are chomping at the bit now to hear sure. the Renegade stuff. I have been releasing it. Because it's, it's mythical, but it's written yeah. every... 
every Aerosmith biography that's ever written, they always mention my name, yep. mention Renegade. So Aerosmith fans are dying to hear this music. So now I, I release it on podcasts. Yeah, and I've heard you. I've heard some of these songs on the other podcasts, and they're killer too. All of this not, stuff is phenomenal. so good. It's so good. It's got to get out there somehow. I know, but you, we don't have a record industry anymore, so it's I like to get it out there. I mean, I nobody makes money anymore, and, 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 you know, everything is free streaming. And, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so get yeah. it back to that. Steven takes back his band, and here I'm left with no band anymore. Yeah. Once again, you know, it's just, here we go. It's yeah. constant group, regroup, group, and regroup. Yep. And I'm trying to think after Renegade, what did where did I go? Um, oh, I Proton, some, right? I didn't that a Proton. Yeah. So I but between Proton, I'm doing projects with a whole bunch of other people. I'm doing a lot of session work. So I'm on a lot of albums. I mean Okay. This is the part vocal. this is the fuzzy area where I don't I don't know what happens after Renegade and I don't know much about Proton either. That I haven't ever been able to hear them. So yeah, so when Renegade falls apart, first of all, how much did you do a lot of touring with Renegade, or did you? Do no, we did no okay. touring. We were no all we did was we lived in a in a sound stage, perfecting the songs, and then we went to the power station, this big great recording studio. Yeah. Who Tony Bon Jovi? Yep. Is John Bon Jovi's cousin? Yeah. And he's recording Bon Jovi. <laughs> His his initial you know um, yeah album yeah. and so that never got released. Renegade never got released. We never Just got to work because, like I said, Steven took back his band. Yeah. So um, so Renegade falls apart, and then you get session work. Now all this time you're still you're not going back and doing getting a regular job. Are you still married by the time this is no. all happening? Now okay. now if by time the end of Flame, I'm no longer married. Okay. By the time I hit Renegade, I'm single. So, okay. um I And you're living off of con money you make from concerts, from recording right. sessions, from where wherever you can scramble together some money for by performing, that's how you're paying your bills. Right? Yeah, and then and then I went back to Wall Street at one point. Um Oh wow. Still doing music at night, that's proton. Now I'm that's coming back to me. Okay. I went back to Wall Street. Because I have, you know, I have a really great resume and a skill set. That, so after um, all this, you go back to a regular job. Yes. What was what did that rent. feel? I'm I'm always interested in that transition. What does that feel like? That moment when you're like, okay, well, I guess this isn't going to happen. I'm going to go back to the regular world. Well, you know what? I never gave up music. I did music at night. Yeah. It, it okay. was like you have to pay the bills. And yeah. any musician that's in transition of doing, you know, trying to make money, they're waiting tables, they're they're doing anything. They tell us back then, tell us sales, anything you can do. To sure. Actors do it constantly. I mean, that's yeah. why they all your wait staff that you usually see in New York, they're all yeah. actors, and, yeah. and and so they do it so that they can audition in the day. And so I just went. I had a great skill set. I just went back to Wall Street, and at yeah. night. I would rehearse with other bands to try to get another record deal. So yeah. I find Proton. Proton, and then I would go to work in the day, 
and that's straight from work. I, mean, yeah. I used to when I when I look back in retrospect, I can't believe I used to do that because I did the same thing with Flame. I would work a full time, full day, eight hour day, and then go and put another five hours in. Yeah. I, I don't know how I did it, but when you're young. When you're young, you can do anything, and you're yeah. driven. You know, so I was driven. I was always driven and tenacious. So um, I'm doing the day job again in the 1980s. Proton, heavy metal band. Now, now we're now we're looking at heavy metal. So right. I'm looking at um, the trade papers and looking for join a band. And I see a ad that says lead singer who can sing like Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> oh, I said that's right up my alley. Well, I, I love Dio. I can sure. sing like Dio. I mean, to me, that's like a piece of cake. Yeah. I go in, and now I'm I'm with my future husband, who I remarried. Okay. And my husband at the time, he was my future husband. I don't think I was married to him yet. He had very long hair. So we, I go to this audition, and they thought my husband was the lead singer. They hand <laughs> him the microphone. They go, and he goes, oh, no, he says, it's not me. It's my it's my fiance. I was engaged right. at the time. So they hand me the They look at me, you know, like, to say, oh, my God, this girl, she's coming in to sing like Dio. And right. They opened my mouth. They all went, oh, my God. They was, wow. I was immediately, the lead, became the lead singer of Proton. And then we got a spec deal. Spec deal is where they sign you in speculation that you're going to break. Now, Guns N' Roses uh-huh. came out. So we... This whole music is starting to change from heavy, heavy metal in the 80s. All of us had this huge, gigantic hair. Right. And Did you like heavy metal? Oh, you, I loved it. I you loved, did? Okay. Loved. I didn't know if you were sort of just looking for something to do or if you legitimately oh, were it. into heavy metal. Okay, good. Love heavy metal. Love it. Okay. Well, I love all music. Let's put it like sure. that. I love, I love it all. So yeah. unfortunately me, I can sing it all. So yeah. um we write music, we wrote songs and very it was great metal. It was melodic metal, I like to say. Back then right. there was a lot of good bands out there. Sure. And then my drummer dies of AIDS. So good it's like, gosh. here we here we're talking about the eighties. Yeah. The late eighties with the AIDS epidemic going on. And my drummer comes down with AIDS and dies. And so I said, this band can never, it was like a Led Zeppelin type of thing. Right. Never be reproduced. So that's when I disbanded Proton. I said, they now, did Proton never get ever another put out an, Did Proton ever put out an album or tour? No, or but I have an album in the can. Of course you do. Gosh. I have so you many albums. You need to put out the Marge Raymond box set. I, I, Please, I have music for days that I I've got it. recorded. I believe it. That's amazing. Proton now, was great. Was anyone in Proton that went on to do anything different? I mean, every other band you've been in, there's these key I people. I don't know. I lost touch with the guy. Okay, you lost touch with Proton. After okay. Al, his name was Al Gallo, after he passed away, I said, that's it. Yeah. I changed my direction. And I said, I'm give, I'm gonna. I'm going to go now totally into a whole nother I went from one extreme to the other so I see this advertisement 
that says, seen in Carnegie Hall, join the collegiate corral. Oh, I said, that sounds like fun. I'd love to sing in Carnegie Hall. So I go and I, it's like when I think about it, the goal I had, I'm not a trained musician. I've never studied music. Right. So I don't know how to read music. I don't know how to write music. I don't know music theory. I know nothing. I'm just, you know, born gifted. I have a great yeah. musical memory. Yeah. So I go to this audition, and I sing my piece. Oh, that's another thing. I also studied the musical theater. In the oh, theater right. I'm also yep. studying the musical theater for Broadway. I'm also right. a Broadway singer. So... I have my board, all my Broadway catalog, and I go up there and I sing uh, a piece from, um, you know, I forget, oh my God, uh, I can't even remember the piece it was, but it was a great Broadway song. And the maestro goes, he hands me a piece of sheet music, and he says, all right, read this and sing it. And I hand it back to him, and I go, I don't know how. He goes, watch, put that voice, watch. And it was like... Um, it, it was like, I said, no, I've never was taught music. Right. So he writes me this letter, and he and he says, I want your voice in my course. He said, but we have a a standard and a, a you know a level that we have. You, you must be able to read music. You must know some music theory. The way Maestro wants to change, you know, um, music on a score, you have to know how to do it. You have to know the dynamics. We're talking classical music, Mozart, Beethoven, all of the grand opera. I'm going, holy cow, what did I just get myself into? I get this letter, and it inspired me. I mean, he said, you have such a talent. I cannot believe that you're not a trained musician. Would you do me a favor and go and learn some elementary music, elementary theory, Elementary sight sing do re mi fa sol la ti do. You know, just mm-hmm. learn how to do that. Come back and re audition next year. So I did. I studied semi privately, and I said, I wanna, I wanna sing in Carnegie Hall because I yeah. knew that this this chorus was a premier chorus in New York City. So I make the audition the following year. I come in. He hands me Mozart. I'm like, uh, trying to, to, you know, he's like, like, he's pushing me along, and I'm trying to like. You know, sing it, sight sing it. You've got to be able to look at the notes and, and know in your head what the note is. Right. So I went and joined this chorus, which is the Collegiate Chorale, who did all classical music. I'm sitting there with people with doctoral degrees in music. Right. Master's degrees in music. And I'm this little old me. Right. And, 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 and it's like I had to record all of the rehearsals then go home, listen to it with the score so yeah. that I could memorize it. I couldn't possibly read, sure. a, you know, a grand opera like that and, and whatever, but I was in it for several years. And because of that, I got to sing with Luciano Pavarotti right. as his backup chorus and a lot of Amazing. all the metropolitan opera. Uh, Is that also what led to the London Oratorio? Were you saying yes, the Liverpool Oratorio? For the Liverpool Oratorio, that's it. Yep. What an amazing break! So here I am. To me, it's like the pinnacle. 
to sing with Pavarotti. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm in this chorus, and I'm with the greatest conductors. I'm with the New York Philharmonic. I'm with the, you know, I'm, you're with the greatest musicians in the world. And here sure. I am. I, I haven't studied anything, and I'm, I'm yeah. with, the, with the greatest singers and, and, and musicians in the world. I mean, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. And especially singing with Pavarotti. Yeah. And when he sang, the audience loved him so much. Now, I've done huge rock festivals, but when you go to a concert with that man when he sang, it, it was like a wind that came yeah. up on the stage. It was a from the audience. It made your hair stand up. My hair stood up. Yeah. And he, because they never let this man, I mean, they gave him like 20,000 curtain calls. And right. He was just phenomenal. Yeah. And I'm and I'm sitting in back of him, you know, it's like I can't believe I'm on the stage with this the yeah, greatest pop singer it. in the world. And the greatest I had the greatest maestros conducting all these guest maestros. I was on T V with the yeah. Tucker Gala, the the Pavarotti Plus shows. I mean, so I got a that that was like, Holy cow, look at where I am now. Right. So, Is that a paying gig? Are you is being a part of the corral? Is that is that a no. job or you, no? So you're still working a full time job on Wall Street and then singing in your off hours. Well, now you see, I'm I've married my my fiance oh, from sure. Proton, so my yeah. husband now is a general contractor. So he said, "Oh, okay. just go sing." Yeah, so He's I the didn't have to work. And then you can write. Yeah, okay. I was able to have fun. So. Yeah. I then became pregnant, and yeah. that's when I was pregnant, when I was uh, did the Liverpool Oratorio. I got to meet Paul McCartney. Now, you know, he had this big dream of doing this uh-huh. classical piece of music. And he yeah. called on when he does the debut at Carnegie Hall, the Collegiate Chorale, to do, the, to do all that. He brings, the, he brings the Liverpool Symphonic Orchestra to New York, and he uses us, instead of you know, flying yeah. in the chorus from Somebody England, else. he right. us. That was amazing. That I got amazing. to work with Paul McCartney. So it, and here's a also funny story. Here I am, we're all on a break. We're rehearsing at Town Hall before we go to Carnegie Hall. And we're on a break, and he's standing in the lobby, just like every, you know, and we're all walking around. So I said to one of my friends, oh, look, there he is. Paul McCartney, I'm going to go over and talk to him. She goes, no. Everybody was, like, afraid to even approach him. But he was very approachable. I go over to him and I say, oh, my God, I loved your music. You know, Beatle fanatic. Sure. And I said, you know, and some of my groups, I said, my favorite song is Oh, Darling. I love to sing Oh, Darling. Uh He looks at me and he says, really? Because a female singing Oh, Darling, I mean, you know, it's like, I bet you'd be great at never, that. He never heard of a, a woman singing one of his sure. songs. So he says to me, did you record it? I says, well, you know, we kind of demoed it. And I could see in his mind, he's calculating, what was the name of the band? And I'm saying, well, maybe I did it with Kicks, or maybe it was, I can't even right. remember. Maybe we didn't even have a, a band name at the time. And I could see him calculating in his mind. He knew every single band that recorded his music. Wow. So I said, no, 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 I never, we never release it. Yeah. And I just did it, you know, for fun. 
Yeah. Says, well, let me hear how you sang it. I nearly fainted right there and then. I says, you want me to sing right here now? He says, yeah, come on now, come on, let me hear you, let me hear you. Let me hear how you did this. I says, well, I put a rock and roll feel on. Oh, I, now I really uh-huh. want to hear it. He made me sing in the lobby. Uh, it's, oh, darling. Wow. I, you know, the, the, oh, darling. And, and I'm just yeah. singing, like, the, the, the beginning in the first verse. So I uh-huh. rocked it out. And he goes, well, well, well done. You know, and he, he was like, that was really brilliant. And, and he wow. Up, and I'm fainting, you know, at the same time. I'm saying, I can't believe he asked me to do this. Yes. And then people are gathering around me in in the place. They go, we can't believe that Paul McCartney asked you to sing. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like, God. So it was like, you know, nobody in the way, only people were there, of course, would know that. Yeah, yeah. And I did this big debut. And I'll never forget that. They put the big light on him. He was in the first box. And Linda McCartney was still alive. His children were sure. young. They were all in the box. It was it was amazing. Wow. And I uh, I um I was ready to give birth. So I had yeah. a college corral. <laughs> and then I said to my husband, you know, I, I want to raise my son, so there's no way that I'm going to go on the road anymore. Yeah. No way that so I need to find something local. I'll join a wedding band, you know. I can right. make money and still sing, and that's what I did. And I joined Generation Gap, which is an eighties band with a horn section, and that's the group that I've been with. We downsized now; it's just two people, myself and Tony Modafferi, and we. Uh-huh. I've been with this group twenty-five years. That is incredible. So you're like that, the real-life Zelig from the Woody Allen movie, this guy that just, person that pops up everywhere and all these key or Forrest Gump who just happens to be, you know, witnessing all these major things and contributing in their own way. Uh, what an amazing life. And I know we've only, I mean, if, I, if it wasn't so indelicate, I would ask for specific stories about all these famous people too, but I'm sure they all have their privacy they want to keep. But well, I got, a, I got one story I'll tell you. Okay, I got a good me. story. Uh, with with Flame. This is a great story. Um, We're all in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, Cleveland is the rock capital of the United States. And we were playing one of the Agora clubs. It's it's a nice club, big club. But who is in town at the same time? Led Zeppelin. They're playing the arena. We're all staying in the same hotel. Swingo's Celebrity Hotel. That was the name of this hotel. Okay. It had, it, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was in Cleveland, Ohio. I guess if you Google it or whatever, you'll right. see that it did exist. So, Flame is in the hotel. Led Zeppelin, the band 38 Special, oh, and wow. the American League umpires. So, oh. the, 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 it, the the hotel is just all men. I'm yeah. the only woman. Right. Because Led Zeppelin was in the hotel, and Led Zeppelin was absolutely, I mean, that's the number one band in 1978. I mean, you know, Houses of the Holy and whatever right. they had, they and they had, you know, their, their movie just came out. Yeah. So they cordoned off the whole street. Nobody was from the outside was allowed into the bar area of the, of the uh, hotel. So the bar was only the musicians, the road crew, the umpires, 
and Led Zeppelin. So we wow. watched them come in after their show. Each, like Robert Plant, and, mm-hmm. and they all had their own limousine. And who's above me in the hotel room but, but Bonham? And he throws the TV out of the window. Oh, my oh God. no. But this stuff that you hear, it, it was like. All was that stuff. Cool. Yeah, you witnessed so go down to the bar, and who's at the bar? Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. So I said to my band members, I said, oh, my God, there's Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Uh-huh. So immediately the guys go over to, to, to Jimmy Page, start talking shop. I said, I'm going to go over to Robert Plant, yeah. and I'm going to tell him. So I go over to him. I introduce myself to him. I, I'm Marge Raymond. I says, I'm lead singer of the band Flame. He looks at me and goes, you're a lead singer of a band? I go, yeah. He says, wait a minute. I says, I have my tour shirt. You want a tour shirt? He goes, oh, I would love a tour shirt. I raise wow. the fifth in my room. I go back down. I give him this. We had these great tour shirts. They had Brooklyn on the front, you know, nice. and RCA, record yeah. tapes, records and tapes. Goes to show how old tapes. Sure, so sure. He loved this. He says, oh, my God, a tour shirt. You know, you we're so isolated. You're very insulated yeah. when you're on tour. Yeah. And especially Robert Plant. He says to me, where are all the women? I go, I don't know. I says, they, they locked up the whole area, that you know, because he was looking for women. Right, and, right. And, and in, in my case now, he's so, like, impressed that I'm a lead singer of a rock and roll band. Uh-huh. He gets there and he starts talking shop with me. I bet. And he says, do you have trouble with your high notes? I can't believe this guy is is asking me about singing and vocal lessons, you know, like, it's like, how do you warm up and stuff like that? And we're sitting there talking shop. This is like one of the greatest stories I've ever, nobody would believe me. But you know what? Down the road, if you picked up an old magazine, Cream magazine, and all Uh these fanzine magazines that were huge back in the 70s and 80s, there was Robert Plant wearing my tour shirt. Really? Time, yes, he must have wore it to death. No I, way. I would, I would see his picture in these <laughs> fanzine magazines wearing my tour shirt. Wow! So I said, "Look at this! I can't believe it." He, he just was like, you know, because being so insulated and, and sure, separated sure. from the public. Nobody, I mean, wow. just like, wow, I got a tour shirt. I got a tour shirt. So it was like, oh, my God. So that was my Led Zeppelin story. That's amazing. It is that that's legacy. amazing. Yeah. Well, I uh, I appreciate all this. I want to ask one more question. Sure. I want you to tell, well, two, tell me what the, what your most memorable moment of your whole career is. Um, I was interviewing Paul Collins. I don't know if you know who Paul Collins is from the Paul Collins beat. And um, he was in a band in the 70s, a punk band called The Nerves. And I asked him what his most memorable moment or the highlight of his career was. And he said he remembered being in the room when Jack Lee brought in Hanging on the Telephone, which he had just written and would soon go on to be this huge hit with Blondie, right? Wow. And uh, and he said, I remember – the feeling when I heard that song and knowing that we had a hit. So I'm curious what your, the highlight of, when you look back, what the, the biggest, best memory is, and then maybe what the biggest, sh- 
show or concert or most memorable concert you ever performed in was? My God, I have so many. I mean, there's there's not just one. I can't I can't pinpoint just one because really? I just have so many great, amazing like it. moments. I mean, the Pavarotti thing with yeah. the five hundred curtain calls and the and and you know and hearing that man sing and just being on the same stage with him that was amazing. Then being flown into a festival like a Woodstock by a helicopter, yeah. and I'm on I'm on a bill with. Jefferson Starship, the Beach Boys, the Doobie Brothers, America. I mean, all these great bands. And the Eagles, you name yeah. it. They're on the bill. I mean, and here we all are hanging out backstage in tents. You know, Incredible. and they, the only way they can get us in and out was through a helicopter. It was like, um, I've had Spinal Tap moments, too, you know. We've had, sure. We couldn't find our way. Oh, that's, here's a great memorable moment with Electric Light Orchestra. We were playing the Philly Spectrum, which no longer exists, big arena. Uh-huh. Philadelphia Flyers, the, the um, you know, the hockey team. Sure. We used their dressing room, their 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 locker room. That, and so we would warm up. We went into the shower, and we sang doo-wop. Oh, and it was man. like Jeff Lynn, myself, Richard Candy, who was the, who was the um, keyboard player, that was like for me a great moment of just sure. like musicians getting together, went into a great uh went into the shower because of the echo and yeah. sang. I mean, it's just musicians having fun. I mean I have fun stories like that. I mean That's amazing. I'm trying to think other memorable moments just there's just so many. Yeah. Um the first time I heard Evil Woman coming through the headset, oh, you know, yeah. in, in the recording studio, I said, oh, my God, that's a hit. If I've ever heard yeah. of it. You yeah. know, and I'm going to be on it. Another question, maybe another memory will pop up because I just have so see. many. Do you have a favorite um, of of anyone that you've worked with or opened for? You talked about Foreigner, you talked about Bad Company, you've talked about Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Is there a person who people might know that um, is a, is an especially good person? Someone who I mean, I'm sure they all are. Is there somebody that sticks out, somebody that we might be surprised to know is just a good guy or, or is special to you for some reason? Oh, absolutely. That one, that one's easy. And all you got to do is just look at, at, at what I do. Steve Algieri. Steve Algieri oh, yeah. was the lead singer of Journey for nine years. After Steve Perry left, Steve Algieri took the lead singing position. Now, Steve... Yep was in my band, the March Raymond Band. And so he started off singing with me, and then from me he went into Tall Stories, and he, mm-hmm. he, he has he, he's in a lot of great bands. So 
I work with Steve Orgiri now on his singles that he does. Yeah, I've heard you play those. So I'm like one of his go-to people because of all of the experience I have as a session singer. I'm stacking vocals, and I'm also an arranger. So he comes to me. We're local. He lives lives here in New York City, and so he's a close, dear friend. He's like a brother. Yeah. Amazing, amazing singer, multi-talented. You know, he plays guitar. He writes. He's just everything. And so Steve, and he, you know, occasionally if he's in the area doing a gig, I join him on stage, you know, as a background vocalist. But I think I've of, seen a video, I think you may have posted it, of yeah, Stone in Love with him yes. on YouTube. It's amazing. I mean, it's not a professionally shot or anything. No, it was somebody's camera rendition. video. There you are. Yeah. Yeah, and there I am. And that was, yeah. down, that was out in Connecticut. We must, we must, there must have been about at least 15,000 people right there. Wow. I mean, Steve draws huge because, you know, he's got a big following from Journey. So um, yeah. it was enormous. And that was just a couple of years ago. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, still I, doing Steve it. and I record, and I, I, I work with Steve. So Steve is a sweetheart. He's like a brother to me. We've been together as, as bandmates from the 1980s. And then he got the great break of going into journeys. So yeah. I'm so happy yeah. for him with that. If anything, you have such an like an unflappable, resilient nature. Um it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drama here. It's more just, no. like, okay, on to the next thing. What do I got to do now? And there's never really any question that some people might go through of, like, you know, is it time to give up my dreams? Should I move back to my parents' basement or whatever? But for you, you just stuck with it, and there was never a question. No, you just you just forge on. You just, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I think I was telling you this in the very beginning, and I, and I give this advice to every musician and then anybody that's listening to this. If music is your passion and you love it, now it's very hard to make a living on it today, especially yeah. today because we have no more music industry. Right. And I say to everybody and anybody, if it is part of your heart and soul, find a way to do it. If it means yeah. singing in your church choir, it, it, it find put put together something, put out a little note somewhere and say, let's get together in somebody's garage or in their basement and let's just get together and have fun. Music. Okay, I thought of a couple more questions for you. Number one, okay. is Generation Gap your, is that your main job? I know you also do the singing tour guide. Uh, yep. You're the singing tour guide at the cemetery, right? Right, I mean, Greenwood, Cemetery. I know this sounds odd. This is going to sound odd to a lot of people, but Greenwood Cemetery is a national historic landmark in Brooklyn, New York. It is the first cemetery for New York City, created in 1838. It is 478 acres. It's on a terminal moraine, so it's from the Ice Age. The land on the interior is phenomenal. 8,000 trees. It is a step back in time. Wow. All your most famous people from America are buried there. And so we have Leonard Bernstein, the great maestro of the New York Philharmonic. I, one of my hobbies, I know I have a lot of hobbies. Uh-huh. One of it is I'm an amateur naturalist. So I I was 
at one point a, a volunteer park ranger. So I like bird watching and I love trees and insects and all that kind of stuff. So I would go in there birding and I said, this place is amazing. So I started to volunteer for the cemetery. Okay. And then they, as the cemetery now is converting into a uh, cultural destination, back in the 19th century, it was the second most visited tourist attraction in the United States. Only the Niagara Falls. So, yes, I know. So now it is becoming a huge tourist destination. And they have this trolley. And this is why I can talk a mile a minute, because I give tours. I'm like a history buff. And I'm a singing tour guide. When I go to Leonard Bernstein, I do excerpts of West Side Story. We have some of the, I just did a, a musical tour over the weekend. We have yeah. the greatest musicians buried in there. So I'll sing their music. We have Fred Epp, who did Chicago and, and Cabaret, you know, New York, yeah. New York. The great song, New York, New York. So I think I've even seen one. clips of that on YouTube. So some, I'm always on YouTube. People are always yeah. filming me somewhere. Right. So there is... Uh, uh, somebody did a video of me doing the tour at Greenwood Cemetery. So I'm going to say yeah. that if anybody, if you come to New York City, come over to Brooklyn or go to Greenwood.com and come on one of the tours that I give. I do it every Wednesday, second and last Sunday. And it's so great. It's so much fun. And That's then great. if you're here, you can come see me sing on the weekends. I'm always oh, believe somewhere. Me. I was in town last May, and uh, I checked, and it, I believe it was a weekend you weren't performing. That's um, pretty bomb. If you come next time, you got to come to Greenwood Cemetery then. I will. I will, for sure. Um, okay, I've got two more questions I want to ask real quick. Sure. Number one, um, do you receive any kind of royalties currently for any flame or any other music that you were a part of back in the day? I co-wrote a song on the Flame album called Angry Time. Schneider. She's terrific, phenomenal singer. She covered the song. Now she's huge in Germany. So okay. she was an American. Actually, when she was Johnny Carson had a show, she was on it. She was like a cabaret singer here, but then she she turned into a rock singer. And she really, her calling is like Broadway and and 
she's absolutely, look her up, Helen Schneider. So okay. she went to Germany and stayed in Germany. She recorded my song, Angry Times. I get a small mechanical royalty. Still, but ridiculous, you know, like right. $2, something absurd. But it became a big hit for her uh, somewhere in the 1980s. Wow. I can't remember, 81, 82. So even up to now, I'm getting, you know, little small checks twice a year, mechanical royalties. And that's it. I really don't make okay. any money from anything. So if somebody... free streaming, everything's for free now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I mean, if somebody were to listen to this podcast and think, I want to go get my hands on some Marge Raymond, there's nothing out there in the marketplace well, they can eBay buy. eBay has my records. On eBay? Well, yeah, that's true. But I was thinking of something where you would receive, you know, we vote with our wallets, right? I mean, we want to support the artist. There would be nothing out there in the marketplace for somebody to buy where you would get, you know, a yeah. residual or royalty off of that. No. It's unfortunate. So those days are over. Like, I'm it's with BMI. There's BMI and ASCAP, which are licensing agencies. Years ago, when they would play your record, they every time they would play your record, you would get a small percentage, and you would get a check from either BMI or ASCAP. Yeah. Your money is also made in publishing. So if you own your publishing, which I didn't, right. Warner Chapel owned it. So that's, I would have made money if I had owned my own publishing. The vast majority of musicians have to give up their publishing. Now, yeah. now in this day and age, you create your own publishing company. Right. Marjorie and Music. And you publish it yourself. And everything is independent as it, as as opposed to going with a huge uh, publishing company. Those days are over. Saw the light shining from the night onto the early dawn. And I found myself, I was sitting here all alone. I took a walk on down the road and met some friends and I'm not quite sure. And so I wait tonight, wait up for the midnight song. All right, Marge Raymond. Was she cool or what? I can't believe some of those stories. She knows these people. I mean, we, we see them on albums and we listen to them. She knows some of them personally. So many close calls. Um, such a great attitude. She's a very cool woman. In the weeks ahead, we're going to do a series of 80s one-hit wonders. Again, I'm not going to tell you who they are. I want it to be a surprise. But if you appreciated 80s music at all, these songs will be very familiar to you. Chances are pretty good you love them still to this day. I know most of you know them. It's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm excited for this. Huge thanks to Aaron Syrett for producing this podcast. And if you want to send me a note, as always, thehustlepod at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you. Thanks, everybody.